0: Uh, Gracious Heavenly Father, please uh, help me to speak your word faithfully and and clearly today. Uh, Help us all to listen and uh, to give us the humility we need to receive your word uh, and to be moulded and shaped by it. Uh, In Jesus' name, Amen. Uh, On April uh, the 5th, 1887, uh, a guy named Lord John Acton, who you've probably never heard of, but he wrote a letter uh, to a bishop, Bishop Creighton, and in it he said something that you probably will have heard of, uh, which is, power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Has anyone heard that before? Or is that just me? Anyway, maybe I studied philosophy at uni, I heard it a bit, but anyway, uh, power tends to corrupt, absolute power corrupts absolutely. I wonder what you think of that. Uh, By and large, I think it's right. People who love power love it so much that they'll do whatever it takes to keep it. Whatever it takes. Uh, A classic example of that is the character Frank Underwood in House of Cards. I don't know if you've seen that show. Uh, But uh, speaking about a fellow politician, uh, Frank Underwood says, Such a waste of talent. He chose money over power. A mistake that nearly everyone makes, money is the McMansion in Sarasota that starts falling apart after 10 years, and power is the old stone building that stands firm for centuries. For those of us, he says, climbing to the top of the food chain, there can be no mercy. There is but one rule, hunt or be hunted. The road to power is paved with casualties." Now, I know it's a fictional example, perhaps an extreme example, uh, but it does illustrate this idea that the power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Power is a dangerous thing. And it's in that context that we come to today's passage uh, where Jesus repeatedly displays immense power, power over creation, over evil and power to forgive sins. So let's have a look at that first story, his power over creation. You might remember that last week, back in verse 18, Jesus told his disciples that they were going to get away from the crowds, head to the other side of the lake. This is Lake Galilee. And so the story starts, they're in the boats, they're crossing to the other side of the lake. And at the start of the story, Jesus' disciples are confronted with the incredible power of this storm. Have a look in verse 24, we're told it's a furious storm. Uh, the word storm there uh, is actually the word seismic. You might have heard that word. It's where we get the, the idea of, of the vibrations that an earthquake records. They're seismic. But, and, the word, uh, and the word furious is the word mega. Right, so this storm is a little bit like a mega earthquake out on Lake Galilee. Uh, lake Galilee, that's what Matthew's saying. Uh, you might think that that's a bit odd. You know, Lake Galilee, surely it's, 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 it's a little small lake. Uh, what's it doing with these uh, massive storms? But, but actually, Lake Galilee is famous for its storms. Uh, it's also pretty big. Right? It's sometimes called the Sea of Galilee right? because it's 13 kilometers wide and 21 kilometers long. Like, it, It's a pretty big lake. It's surrounded by mountains. And so what used to happen was that the, the kind of uh, warm air would rise off the lake, the cold air would come off the mountains, and it would produce these really big storms. If you were in, uh, of course, if you were crossing the lake uh, in one of those old-style boats, it was really long, it had low sides. These are the boats that Jesus and his disciples were in. Uh, if you are in a boat like that and a storm came up, uh, you were extremely vulnerable. Uh, you see there in verse 24, Matthew says the waves are starting to sweep over the boat. Literally, he says that they're covering it up. It's a life-threatening situation. And yet Jesus is having a kip. He's laid down, uh, He's asleep. Now, that's interesting, uh, in particular, because in the Old Testament, there's another story with someone who's having a sleep uh, in the middle of a storm, the story of Jonah. It's got lots of parallels with this story, actually. Uh, uh, Perhaps you remember that uh, God said to Jonah, uh, told him to go to Nineveh, uh, to urge them to repent, uh, but Jonah didn't want to go, right? He didn't have much time for the Ninevites. uh, So instead, he set sail for Tarshish. And in Jonah chapter 1, we read this. It says uh, from verse 4, Uh, Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid and each cried out to his own God and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. Uh, But what was Jonah doing? Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. Uh, The captain went to Jonah and said, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he'll notice us so we won't perish. Well, you see the parallel. Just like Jonah, Jesus is woken by a panicking crew, his disciples. But there's a difference. Like Jonah was asked to pray to his God, whereas Jesus' disciples seem to think that he ought to be able to do something about the storm himself. They say, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. So even though they're panicking, they're lacking in faith, they have seen Jesus in action enough to think he might be able to do something about the storm. And, of course, they were right, right? Because as powerful as the storm is, in verses 26 and 27, Jesus' disciples are confronted with an even greater power, Jesus' power. Jesus wakes up. He says, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? Now, perhaps that seems a bit harsh. (laughs) It is a life-threatening situation. But but actually, uh, Jesus' disciples have been getting the inside scoop on who he is, Uh, They've seen his miracles, they've heard all his teaching. uh, uh, But Jesus is concerned that after everything they've seen and heard, they still haven't got it. But they believe, in a sense, they do have faith. Jesus doesn't say they don't have faith, but he's saying, where is it? You're not putting your faith into action, he's saying. You don't really believe that I care for you, that I've got the circumstances of your life under control. Uh, So Jesus Jesus rebukes his disciples, uh, and then he rebukes the storm. That's important to notice. Uh, Jesus doesn't have to cast a spell. He doesn't have to wave a magic wand. He, he doesn't have to kind of do superhero style, as Ricky's reminded, like, kind of push back the storm with supernatural strength. No, he just speaks. Stop. That's all he has to do, and the storm stops. Uh, it's completely calm, Matthew says. Actually, the word there is mega calm. You go, know Matthew's doing. He's saying that there's this mega storm, and now it's mega calm, and the only thing in between is Jesus' powerful word. That's how powerful Jesus is. It's amazing. And you see there, Jesus' disciples are amazed. Verse 27, they're amazed, but because they've realized that even though they were, afraid, they were afraid of the storm, Jesus is much more powerful. That's quite scary. It's the same in Jonah 1. After the storm was calmed, in verse 16, we're told that the men greatly feared the Lord. So Jesus' disciples say to one another, what kind of man is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Jesus' disciples were Jewish. They knew their Old Testament. So they knew that only the God who created the world has the power to control the world they read Psalms, the talk. Uh, So Psalm uh, 107, for example, uh, which talks about a great storm on the ocean and people uh, kind of being terrified. And then in verse 28, Psalm 107, verse 28 says, Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distress. He stilled the storm to a whisper. The waves of the sea were hushed. Jesus' disciples knew Psalms like that psalms about the power of god over his creation that only the god who created the world has the power to control his world and yet they've just seen jesus control the world so what do they do with that and these guys are fishermen remember they've spent a lot of time on this lake they know when storms come up naturally and go naturally So I don't think that they're just oh they just didn't get it the storm just blew away no 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 these guys were cluey they'd spent their whole lives on the lake even the wind and waves obey this man what kind of man is he is he even a man or is he as Matthew said back in chapter one Emmanuel God with us that's what the disciples are thinking that's Jesus' power over creation then in verses 28 to 34 we see his power over evil so if you look in verse 28. Uh, Matthew says, when Jesus arrived at the other side in the the region of Gadarenes, uh, two demon-possessed men coming from the tombs met him. Now, uh, you might be someone who hears a reference to uh, demon-possessed men uh, and you tune out kind of straight away. You're like, because only illogical people or primitive people are are stupid enough uh, to believe in evil spirits like demons. I don't know if that's what you're thinking, but perhaps some of you are. Right, so if that's what you think, uh, let me ask a, a question that I mentioned a couple of weeks back when I was uh, talking about miracles. Uh, the question is, uh, can, if that's how you think, right, I'd like you to prove to me using pure logic, uh, exercise your rational uh, arguments alone, that God does not exist. Right, just with logic, just, just with reason. But even the most hardened atheists would admit that they can't do that. So I think it follows that if you can't logically prove that God doesn't exist, right, God being a personal, supernatural, good being, uh, then you can't logically prove that demons don't exist. Personal, supernatural, evil beings. I don't think you can say it's illogical to believe that demons exist. You might not want to believe they exist, but it's not illogical. And you might say, well, it's not illogical, but it is Primitive. Right, people back in that day and age they thought everything was demonic you know, they had a sniffle they were like cast out the you know cast out the, the demon of colds so like everything was demonic right but they didn't think that right back in chapter four Matthew said news about Jesus spread all over Syria and people brought brought to him all who were ill with various diseases are those suffering severe pain the demon possessed those having seizures and the paralyzed and he healed them Matthew doesn't lump everything together under the banner of demon possession. He knows that some people have diseases, some physical pain, some seizures, some are paralyzed, and some are demon-possessed. Now, you might not be persuaded by that, but all I'm suggesting is that these evil spiritual forces do exist and you can't simply write them off as being illogical or primitive. In the second half of verse 28, Matthew gives us a description of these men. Have a look there. Two demon-possessed men coming from the tombs met Jesus. Uh, they were so violent that no one could pass that way. And not a lot of detail. right? There's more detail in Mark chapter 5 if you want to read this story in Mark. Uh, but what is clear is that these men are a mess. Right? That they're so violent, that they're so powerful that they have to live in a graveyard outside the town. But People are scared of them. They're quarantined out there. And that gives us some insight into how uh, spiritual evil works, in a sense. Uh, If spiritual evil gets a hold on your life, like it did with these men, uh, it is very powerful. You can experience real power, uh, but ultimately the power will enslave you and be destructive like it was with these men. Now, obviously, these men are dramatically influenced by evil. They're demon-possessed, right? But, but in subtle ways, uh, all of us can be influenced by evil. Uh, I say that because the Bible draws a really close link between idolatry, that's, that's what we worship, and evil, evil spiritual forces. Right, so in, in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 10, Paul says, uh, "...consider the people of Israel... Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Do I mean that uh, that a sacrifice offered to an idol is anything or or that an idol is anything? No. But the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do do not want you to be participants with demons. That's pretty pretty intense language, right? But Paul's saying that if you choose to worship an idol, right? If you choose to to kind of make something other than Jesus the Lord uh, the center of your life, right? The the very thing that you live for, that you make all your sacrifices for, if you do that, uh, in some way, it's like you're participating with evil spiritual forces. You're inviting them into your life. You're, you're, You're kind of saying, let's have fellowship. Let's hang out a bit. And Paul's saying that if you do that, it will affect you. But, yeah, for example, like Frank Underwood, if you decide to worship the idol of your career, you you kind of make your career everything, it's the center of your life. If you do that, uh, for a while, you might have great power. If you've seen House of Cards, Underwood is a powerful man. Uh, You have this drive to climb to the top, to achieve your goals. Uh, No one will be able to stop you. Incredibly powerful. Uh, But in the end, your career will enslave you, it's destructive. You'll sacrifice everything for your career, important relationships, moral integrity, health, all sorts of things you'll sacrifice for your career until you're really just a shell of the person you used to be, like the men in this passage. That's how evil works, if it gets a hold in, in your life, in your heart. And what's clear in this passage is that these men aren't just spiritually uh, evil, uh, as in they're possessed and evil's got a hold in their life, but they're also spiritually unclean. Uh, so that means that they're, they're kind of not fit to be in a relationship with a God who is holy and pure. But we see that in three ways. Let me—I'll be real brief. Uh, first, they live on the east side of Lake Galilee. That's that's Gentile area. Right? that's where the Romans uh, ruled. Right, the Jews said that territory was spiritually unclean. Second, uh, notice these men come out from the tombs. Right, and Numbers 19 says any association with the dead makes you spiritually unclean. Right, so I'm tipping living in a graveyard qualifies for association with the dead. Uh, and three, uh, there's obviously a lot of pigs in the area. We'll get to that in a second. Right, But the Jews, we know, they're not much of a fan of bacon. Okay, So uh, here they are. These men are presented to us as completely kind of gripped, dominated by evil, and completely unclean that's the picture their situation seems hopeless except for jesus have a look the men shout to jesus what do you want with us son of god have you come here to torture us before the appointed time but these powerful demons that have wrecked these men's lives are afraid of jesus they know that Jesus has the power to defeat them. All they can do, uh, they can't fight Jesus. All they can do in verses 30 and 31 is beg Jesus. If you do drive us out, please send us into that herd of pigs. Jesus says, go. The demons come out of the men. They go into the pigs. The pigs rush down the hill into the lake and die. So just like with the storm, powerful evil forces are confronted with the awesome power of Jesus and it's a no contest. No contest. All Jesus has to do is speak one word and it's done. Uh, I was going to talk about the, uh, the pigs. If you want to know why why, why kind of sacrifice these pigs, uh, come and talk to me later on. I've got some stuff to say there, but uh, we just don't have time uh, today. And you'll notice, once again, the second story finishes uh, with people terrified of Jesus. That's what's going on at the end of the story. People are pleading with Jesus to leave. Please leave our area, right? They, they kind of were a bit scared of those two demon-possessed men. They were, but they at least had them under control. They were in the graveyard, right? They've got no idea what to do with Jesus. Get out of our territory, right? So Jesus leaves. He heads back across the lake. And we see his power to forgive sins. Chapter 9, verse 1. Jesus heads to his hometown. That's Capernaum. And we know that because in chapter 4, verse 13, Matthew told us that. So Jesus arrives in Capernaum, and some men bring a paralyzed man to him on a mat. They've heard, words got around that he's an amazing healer. And in verse 2, you see Jesus recognizes their faith, he responds to their faith, and then he says something really weird, right? He says to this paralyzed man, "'Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven.'" Now you imagine uh, this man's paralysed, uh, perhaps you can imagine what he's thinking, he's kind of like, well thanks for the forgiveness Jesus, but can you do anything about my legs? Because that's really where the problem's at, right? But that's the point, isn't it? This paralysed man's deepest problem is not his paralysis, as shocking as that is, Jesus is saying showing us that his deepest problem is his sin, and because Jesus is so kind and compassionate, he sees this man's faith, he doesn't want to shortchange him. And so he says, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. And you can see that that doesn't go down very well. In verse 3, there's some Jewish leaders in the crowd, teachers of the law, and they don't, they don't say anything out loud, Matthew's explicit about that, but in their hearts, they're thinking, who does Jesus think he is? But then, knew their Old Testament, all sins against God ultimately. I mean, so only God's got the power to forgive sins. So is Jesus saying he's God? That's blasphemous. How can he possibly say such a thing? All that's going on in their heads. And Jesus knows exactly that that's what they're thinking. So in verses 4 to 7, he gives, us, gives them some proof. He wants to show them that he does have the power to forgive sins. You see, Jesus he understands that forgiveness of sins is an internal thing. It really can't be tested. Yeah, I could say to you, I forgive your sins. Kind of like, well, okay. But right, it can't be tested. Right? So Jesus challenges the Jewish teacher saying, You guys aren't sure that I'm God. You aren't sure that I've got the power to forgive sins. So what's easier? Telling someone their sins are forgiven? Or or telling someone who's paral or healing someone who's paralyzed? It's not that Jesus is in doubt, he knows forgiveness is greater. But he knows that you can't test that. Healing someone who's paralyzed, on the other hand, is a claim you really have to be able to back up. So Jesus says to the man, get up, take your mat and go home. And that's what the man does. The physical healing provides proof that Jesus is, in fact, God. That he does have the power, the authority uh, to uh, to achieve the much deeper healing. The forgiveness of this man's sins. Not just his sins, but anyone's sins. And so the story finishes again with people in awe of Jesus. In fact, praising God who gave Jesus such incredible power. And now the question is, are these crowds going to follow Jesus? Um, Matthew 8-10 as a whole, the whole point is a whole lot of deeds of Jesus' power interspersed with stories about people following Jesus. So are these crowds going to follow him? Right? We've seen in these stories that, that seeing Jesus' power uh, is enough uh, perhaps to make you amazed at Jesus, uh, you might be terrified at Jesus, it might put you in awe of Jesus, but it doesn't necessarily make you want to follow Jesus, to entrust your life to Jesus. Right? And I understand that because of where I started. If you're going to follow someone with this kind of power, you've really got to know what they're going to do with their power. Is their power going to corrupt them? Are they going to use their power for good or for evil? Uh, of course, in answering that, we've got a, a much a kind of massive advantage over the people in this story, right? We know how the story ends. Well, I pointed out that that first story has lots of parallels with Jonah chapter one. Jesus and Jonah, they're in boats, both boats are in a storm, both of them are asleep, both of them get woken up by a panic crew. In both stories, God displays his power and the storm is calm. A whole lot of parallels, but one really important difference. The difference is that in Jonah chapter 1, the storm is calmed because Jonah is willing to die. Jonah says, throw me into the storm. And remember, this is really, that's what Jonah deserves, actually, but this is a storm of God's judgment against him because he caused the storm by running away and rebelling against God. But in Matthew 8, Jesus isn't thrown into the storm. Because the story of Jonah in the Old Testament is just a shadow of the real deal. It's a signpost pointing us to the true Jonah. That's Jesus. He says as much in a couple of chapters time in Matthew chapter 12, if you want to read it later on that Jesus is the true Jonah, the ultimate Jonah, because he wasn't only willing to be thrown into some physical storm to save some sailors, but he was thrown into the storm of God's judgment on the cross, the storm of God's wrath on the cross, God's uh, judgment that rages not against uh, Jesus, who was without sin, but against us, whose hearts are full of sin. I said, this is, the, this is the wonderful news of the gospel. Well, I said uh, "The baptism represents the promises of the gospel. This is one of the great promises. Uh, that God's anger against us, his judgment against us, is, is like a raging storm. And yet it's calmed because Jesus isn't just powerful, he's good. So good he was willing to, to be thrown into the storm of God's judgment, giving his life for our sins. Uh, Some of you uh, have heard this uh, illustration uh, before, I hope it's still good, Uh, because growing up I really loved the the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis, and uh, one of my favourite bits uh, is when Lucy and Susan are talking uh, to Mr. and Mrs. Beaver about Aslan, Uh, you might know this uh, scene. Uh, They're speaking about Aslan, the king of the beasts, Uh, and Susan says, I thought Aslan was a man, is he safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or just stupid. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he's not safe, but he is good. He is good. It's not enough for Susan and Lucy to know that Aslan is powerful, the king of the beasts. They also had to know he was good. And in the same way, it's not enough for us to know that Jesus is powerful. It's, It's wonderful. But we also have to know that he's good. And we know he's good because of his willingness to give of his life on the cross. Jesus, the king in God's kingdom, has uncontrollable power. He's not in a box, he's not safe, he's not tame, he's not domesticated in any way. But he is good, so you can follow him. Uh, Let me pray. Uh, Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for these uh, wonderful stories that show us the power of our Lord Jesus. Uh, We pray that we would be uh, in awe, uh, that we would be appropriately fearful of him and his amazing power. Uh, but we would also be uh, so encouraged by uh, how having this incredible power, uh, he wasn't corrupted by it. He used his power for the great good of saving many. And so we pray that we would put our trust in him uh, and follow him in trusting our lives to him. Uh, For his glory we pray. Amen.